0: Liberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me Just Liberty Just
1: Liberty Hi, this is Amanda marzolo and our lead story today is a bit more than reasonably suspicious. According to a tweet from the Texas A&M University Police Department, officers in College Station recently approached a man with his legs sticking out of some bushes asked what was going on the suspect replied no bleeping idea asked where he was the man answered wherever you are when asked how much he had to drink the man replied too much sir subject arrested the tweet concluded so Scott do you think these officers had probable cause for an arrest
2: well I can't say for sure because I'm not a lawyer but to be fair all of my answers were completely honest and accurate. (laughs) I mean wherever you are is technically correct I'm, I'm just saying. I, I think I'm not getting full credit.
1: For, <laughs> yeah.
2: At least honestly. Honesty.
1: honesty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I know it's on the books, but I don't think pu- public intoxication is a real offense not, anyway.
2: Not a real crime. No. no. Not, not a real thing. I agree. All right. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the April 2018 episode of the Reasonably Suspicious podcast. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director of Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo from the Texas Defender Service. On the show today, Texas revenge porn law has been declared unconstitutional. The Texas Supreme Court will decide whether district attorneys can fire prosecutors for refusing to intentionally violate the law. And Just Liberty releases a new tune promoting reduced incarceration and prison closures. First up, though, In Travis County, the Council for State Governments has issued a new analysis showing a huge difference in defendant outcomes based on whether or not a defendant has an appointed lawyer. Defendants charged with state jail felony drug crimes, typically possession of less than a gram of a controlled substance or less than the amount of sweetener in a sweetened low packet, were convicted 48% of the time if they hired their own lawyer, but 80% of the time if the court appointed one. Meanwhile, bookings in Travis County for state jail felony drug possession increased 34% over the last five years, while jail bookings overall declined 14% over the same period. County Judge Sarah Eckhart has proposed eliminating flat fee payments for attorneys in response, shifting to hourly or salaried options, including possibly creating a public defender office. So Mandy, what's your takeaway from these data and how should Travis County respond?
1: Well, I guess, like, as usual with these reports, they raise more questions than answers. I think, you know, Judge Eckhart's proposal will eliminate a large part of the problem with respect to indigent defense representation in travis county those of you who listen to the podcast will probably know that flat fees in many ways create a perverse incentive for attorneys essentially they're paid the same amount no matter how much work that they put into a case so it creates you know an incentive to do as little as possible
2: right it's easier to plead the case out the first time you get an offer than it is to investigate it and try and debunk the prosecution's case.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what I think is probably happening. Um, A recent article that you blogged about with the Texas Tribune sort of reports that one attorney had a very high caseload, Um, but it seems that the reason why her caseload was so high is that their standards doesn't measure how many cases she has in an annual cycle, just how many cases she's handling at any one time. So under a flat fee system, that means that if she closes out her case, she'll get her fee and then she'll be reappointed to another one.
2: Right. She had had nearly 800 cases in a year, which is more than four times what an attorney probably should be handling. And she wasn't the only one. There were quite a few with hundreds and hundreds of cases well over what the guidelines are for what attorneys ought to be handling in these sorts of cases. So they they really do have a big problem. In Travis County. So we've got a situation where we shifted to the managed to sign counsel here in Austin several years ago, this new system where supposedly the defense bar is going to manage itself. Mm -hmm. And all of the outcomes have gotten worse. The caseloads of attorneys have gotten higher. We now know that on these drug cases, indigent defendants are being convicted in 80% of the cases compared to Mm -hmm. 48% where the attorneys are hired. Incarceration in the county jail, we found out in the Council for State Government's report, increased over the past few years. It it went from an average of eight days for indigent defendants to nine days. So we have people staying in jail longer. We have higher caseloads and terrible outcomes. And so it's really just an enormous mess.
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, this this report, and I, I should say that the report that's been released publicly is just a summary report with recommendations. There is a larger report that goes into more depth that has not been released. So some of the answers may be in there. But it does warrant taking a good look at how attorneys are being appointed what their rate is and how that compares to the rates that they're getting in the private sector and maybe also to you know maybe even match cases that the same that are handled by the same attorney in the indigent defense system versus in the private sector to see what really is happening.
2: That's right because the dirty little secret here is that when we say oh 80% of the cases of indigent defendants are getting convictions and 48% of those yeah. where the attorneys were hired the truth is a bunch of those were probably the same lawyers. <laughs> yeah. What we're probably seeing is attorneys who are working hard when they're hired and yeah. who are just playing the case out as quickly as they can when it's an injured client. And that really is is a huge problem and it part of it's the pay structure and part of it is just that maybe those attorneys aren't really behaving in the most ethical way as well.
1: Yeah, no, it's sad. Next up, the Texas Supreme Court will soon decide whether former Nueces County District Attorney Mark Skirka violated the law when he fired prosecutor Greg Hillman for refusing to violate Texas's Michael Morton Act, guaranteeing that prosecutors share favorable evidence with defense counsel. In the Houston Chronicle, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Lisa Falkenberg urged the court to side with Mr. Hillman, declaring that prosecutors, quote, shouldn't be forced to choose between their jobs and their duty to do justice. So, Scott, what does this episode tell us about Texas prosecutors' compliance with the Michael Morton Act?
2: That in at least some cases, it's incredibly grudging. <laughs> uh, the, this this idea that you would actually fire a prosecutor for handing over exculpatory evidence just seems outlandish on its face, and yet the Intermediate Court of Appeals actually said it was okay that prosecutors are at-will employees and can be fired for anything, including refusal to violate the law. Strangely, if this were a private employer, Texas case law actually already says that you cannot be fired for refusing to violate the law, even if you're an at-will employee. This case is raising the question of, does that also apply to a public employee? And so far the courts have said, no, it does not. Now the Supreme Court granting this does mean that at least four members thought that that wasn't right. And maybe we're going to, you know, get a different outcome here, but it's pretty outlandish really that they just thought, you know, Oh, sure. You can (laughs) fire them for that. It's kind of nuts.
1: No, no, it's crazy. And also, I mean, I think it's worth noting that the underlying Brady violation in this case really turns on a common practice in Texas where, you know, the Line prosecutor Mr. Hillman had identified a witness who was not referenced in the police reports, but who verified the defendant's account of the night in question,
2: confirmed an alibi. Yeah,
1: and and his supervisor told him not to disclose this evidence because he conducted the interview and that it was work product, quote unquote. But that privilege, you know, really doesn't exist. Just be- just because a prosecutor you know, conducts an investigation, doesn't make a statement. Privilege.
2: Right. This is an outlandish abuse of power, really. And I hope the Supreme Court slaps down Mr. Skirka. All right. Next up. Just Liberty this week launched a new campaign aimed at urging Texas officials to reduce incarceration and close more prisons. We commissioned a jingle produced by the virtuoso guitarist Gabe Rhodes with vocals by the great Malford Milligan and drums by percussion guru Donnie Wynn. I wrote the lyrics, and because I'm hip and in touch with what the kids are into these days, it's a train song. Give it a listen.
0: (laughs) The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers and cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna, gonna learn this train window well on. And the ticket price show is high. Stop the train. 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 Stop the train, I'm getting off. When the train pulls into the station, when the driver blows his horn, my baby will be there waiting long, just as sure as the day you were born. And the doors of the train will open, and the platform people will flood, and a voice will rain from heaven saying, Your dead was.
1: So I gotta say, to Scott, I'm I'm normally I you know I don't consider jingles an art form, but I think you really outdid yourself here.
2: No, thank you. We had a ton of fun with this, and Gabe Rhodes did an absolutely amazing job. I thought he completely killed it. Um, we're going to use this for everything, for all <laughs> sorts of reduced incarceration bills and proposals. And we're going out next week and sending email to the Department of Criminal Justice and asking them to include prison closures in their budget request. So we're going to use this as essentially theme music and and just a, a, a promotional jingle for the entire decarceration campaign through next session and if nothing else i'll have more fun
1: <laughs> well that's what matters most stop the
0: train stop the train stop the train stop the train stop the train i'm getting old
2: next up in our death in texas segment on capital punishment mandy tells us about the case of juan castillo who has been scheduled for execution in may without courts having considered the implications of recanted informant testimony in his trial Currently, the U.S. Supreme Court is considering whether to hear the case of Juan Castillo, who is scheduled for execution on May 16th. Last fall, the Court of Criminal Appeals stayed a previous execution date and remanded his case for fact-finding about his claim that an informant's false testimony affected the outcome of his trial. So, Mandy, what should folks know about this case?
1: So, this case, and full disclosure, Texas Defender Service actually represents Mr. Castillo. So, there is bias here. But this case really is an example of how a case can cycle through the court system without any meaningful review whatsoever. So, you know, last fall, the Court of Criminal Appeals stayed Mr. Castillo's execution on the grounds that informant testimony may have affected the outcome of his trial and directed the trial court to look into it. Yeah,
2: false informant testimony. False
1: informant testimony where he had recanted his statements. And we know that incentivized testimony is circumspect. Just in general, there are a lot of problems with it that we've seen across cases. And much of the state's case against Mr. Castillo is relying on, you know, statements of others that Mr. Castillo confessed. Right. So it's not it's not a particularly strong evidentiary case to begin with, which is one reason why we took it. But what happened in the trial court was pretty extraordinary. The case, once the case was in the trial court, it was there for really only a day. It was referred to the original judge who presided over the trial for, you know, bureaucratic reasons. The prosecutor's office in Bear County submitted their brief to explain what happened and why there was no reason to open it up. And then the sitting judge adopted those findings or proposed findings from the prosecutor's brief within a day and provided us with no opportunity to substantiate our case and prove it, and that's where we
2: are. So just to be really clear for the non-lawyers out there, um, this writ of habeas corpus had gone to the Court of Criminal Appeals, and they said, okay, this informant issue needs to be looked at more closely. We're gonna send it back down to the trial court judge for further consideration. Yes. But when it came back to the trial court judge, she did not give you an opportunity to issue a brief, to have a hearing, to really have any input at all. No. And she just adopted the prosecutor's findings of fact and, and put a rubber stamp on it and sent it back. And the Court of Criminal Appeals said, that's good enough for us.
1: Yes, and absolutely. So now we're in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the issue is, do we even have a right of due process?
2: Right. And what was the point really of the Court of Criminal Appeals sending it back down if it's OK to have no examination at all of the issues? That, it makes no sense. Yeah. It's kind of absurd on its face. And I don't understand really why they then would think that was acceptable. They know these death penalty cases get incredible amounts of scrutiny. And why would you want to overlook potentially false informant testimony if that's going on?
1: It it makes, I I can't explain it. I wish I could.
2: Well, good luck on your your appeal to the Supreme Court.
1: All right. Thanks. Coming up, Scott and I play fill-in-the-blank, evaluating disparate outcomes in elections, why Texas hasn't faced the worst of the opioid crisis, and judges who reduce indigent defense payments. But first, here's a quick word from Just Liberty.
0: Justice is blind, her hands are full, holding a sword and scales. She has no time for politics, that's why her fo- Needs a platform. Justice needs a platform. Fida dee, de, did it de, do Justice needs a platform. Justice needs a platform. Free, da, de, de,
2: do. Just Liberty's campaign to install criminal justice reform in the platforms of both Texas political parties is in full swing. With resolutions passing at a majority of Senate districts in both parties. We'll have a booth at both state conventions in June. If you're going to be a delegate, stop by and see us. And support adding our criminal justice reform proposals to your party platform. Next up, Mandy and I play fill-in-the-blank, a competition in which each of us suggests how to best complete a sentence and then mine is acknowledged as the correct answer.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) We'll see.
2: First up, Galveston County Court of Law Judge Jack Ewing has been sued by a local criminal defense lawyer after he reduced his fees on indigent defense cases and chastised him for spending too much time investigating misdemeanor charges. The New York Times reported that the lawsuit exposed a common but seldom discussed problem, quote, indigent defense lawyers often get their assignments from the judges in whose courtrooms they appear. This discourages a robust defense, experts say, and leads to an emphasis on resolving cases quickly. Mandy, the counties and the state keep pointing fingers at one another over who's responsible for underfunding indigent defense. But this story shows how those decisions are practically made in real life by local judges. So fill in the blank. The poor quality of indigent representation for misdemeanors is caused by...
1: The judge's conflict of interest. So as the New York Times has pointed out here, clearly, you know, judges, you know, put pressure on defense attorneys to move their cases quickly which means not investigating them and not engaging in zealous advocacy and when you do do that you are less likely to receive appointments in texas we have a wheel but we also have judges who deviate from the wheel
2: i would say that this shows that the poor quality of integer representation is caused by judicial (laughs) too. i think that uh, you know you You look at all of the costs that the judge is creating by doing this. You don't have a good representation on the front end. And so the defendant is more likely to spend time sitting in jail pre-trial, and the taxpayers pay for that. They're more likely to be convicted. We saw this earlier, how much more likely anyway to be convicted you are if you have appointed counsel. So you're more likely to go to prison if you um, have appointed counsel. All these things If you spend just a little money on the front end, the taxpayers benefit a lot on the back end. He's only saving a tiny amount.
1: I'm uh, not paying end.
2: for this fellow's investigation.
1: Well, that's what I think in some ways makes what Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who's the district attorney there, sort of interesting. Because part of the problem here, right, is that judges are given a budget for indigent defense under our system. And it's a limited amount that they're supposed to use. And creating a savings further on down the road in a defendant's case you know, or life cycle really isn't really going to impact their budget.
2: That's right. So,
1: right. I mean, and, you know, we're robbing from, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul, which I think I've said now, like, in every single podcast that <laughs> we've made. But, you know, it, it, it's this ongoing problem, right? That our system is so fragmented. Next up, in Tarrant County so far this year, a formerly incarcerated woman has received a five-year sentence for mistakenly voting, and an elected justice of the peace received probation for intentionally submitting fraudulent signatures to get his name on the ballot. So, Scott, fill in the bank. These cases tell us blank about prosecutor discretion in election cases.
2: That it is incredibly politicized. The case where the woman got five years really was in my opinion an abuse of prosecutorial power to go after her that hard she was a woman who did not understand the rules she went to vote and they gave her a provisional ballot she didn't conceal anything mm-hmm. she just didn't know the rules um her ballot was never counted and and,
1: and and by the way she wanted to perform her civic duty
2: that's right that's right meanwhile this justice of the peace Literally is fixing an election. He's literally committing fraud in order to get his name on the ballot based on misrepresentation. And his behavior directly undermines Mm. Democratic government in a way that this woman's bureaucratic error does not. And yet he gets probation. She's got a five-year prison sentence. Now, the prosecutor would say, the reason for this is the trial penalty that she did not take responsibility for her crime, and and the judge did. Well, that's to me because the judge was responsible <laughs>
1: yeah, that was. there was
2: actually Mensrea in in his situation. He he did have a guilty mind. He understood he was committing fraud. She made a mistake, and so I I don't really find that a convincing argument. So how would you answer?
1: You know, I almost want to say, tell us nothing about prosecute. We already know that prosecutorial discretion is running rampant here. We already knew this. <laughs> System Fair. sucks.
2: Fair enough. <laughs> Finally, former Democratic Texas Congressman Sylvester Reyes authored a column in The Austin Statesman calling on Texas to stem the tide of fentanyl in the wake of a national spike in opioid deaths. But Texas has not seen such a fentanyl-related spike, and the Addiction Research Institute at the University of Texas at Austin recently offered an explanation. Quote, Texas has not yet suffered the epidemic of overdoses seen in the Northeast because the heroin in Texas is Mexican black tar, which cannot easily be mixed with fentanyl. The purity of black tar is 45 to 50 percent as compared to 80 to 85 percent purity for Mexican South American heroin in the Northeast. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. Concerns about a fentanyl epidemic in Texas are.
1: Grossly overstated due to the poor quality of our drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, that's the problem here. I mean, no, I I mean, I'm being a bit facetious, but. Yes, it's overstated. This is a solution in search of a problem. I guess it's good sometimes not to have good things.
2: That's right. This is why we can't have good things. You know, poor quality heroin, so we don't get fentanyl overdoses. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's <laughs>
1: one problem we've avoided. We, we have one. <laughs> Those snobby Yankees. Serves them right up north.
2: That's right. Sorry. Well, the, the, the problem is that, that really we. We're not that much better off. I would say concerns about the fentanyl epidemic in Texas are diverting attention from the real problems. Yes, it's absolutely true that we have not seen the opioid spike, opioid overdose spike that they have in the Northeast. What's not being said and what was not said in Congressman Reyes's column is that we have more meth overdoses in texas than opioid overdoses and methamphetamines is actually where our more significant addiction problem lies and this has to do with geographical issues it has to do with texas policy we made some policy decisions that actually allowed mexican meth to flood into the state and drove prices down to less than half what they were a decade ago Mm. and so We aren't seeing the fentanyl problem because we have a different problem, and it's sad that a congressman is so out of touch with his own state that he isn't aware of it. (laughs) Definitely. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. The city of Houston has enacted new zoning restrictions to limit the creation or expansion of halfway houses, treatment centers, and re-entry facilities. So, Mandy, is this going to make the city safer?
1: Absolutely not. These types of facilities are like lighthouses. They're a public good um, that, you know, reduce crime. And making them fewer and far between is just going to make things worse. So, Scott. Texas's so-called revenge porn statute passed in 2005 and has been declared unconstitutional by the Tyler Court of Appeals on freedom of speech grounds. So, Scott, should Texas expect the Court of Criminal Appeals to reinstate the revenge porn law or overturn it?
2: This sucker is toast. (laughs) It is is absolutely 100% going to be overturned. The Court of Criminal Appeals has has visited these free speech issues several times recently as it relates to, to statutes restricting online speech. Texas prosecutors have brought a number of these um, statutes forward and they keep getting knocked down by the courts. We've seen improper photography, online solicitation of a minor, now revenge porn. And while no one is saying any of these are good things, revenge porn isn't a good thing. What we're saying isn't what the 12th Court of Appeals is saying is that the law they wrote is far too overbroad and simply ignores all First Amendment jurisprudence. And you just don't get to do that. You can't restrict speech with criminal law in as sweeping a fashion as they want to. And it doesn't matter if the Prosecutor Association tells you it's okay, Texas legislators, It's not. Stop (laughs) listening to them. They're giving you bad advice.
1: (laughs) Yes. Listen to Mark Bennett.
2: That's right. Finally, a Houston sheriff's deputy was fired by Sheriff Ed Gonzalez after he shot Danny Ray Thomas, an unarmed black man whose pants were around his ankles when the deputy fired the fatal shot. Mandy, while firing officers after the fact solved the problem, Or do we need to consider front-end solutions?
1: Clearly, we need to consider front-end solutions. Mr. Thomas was actually in a psychotic state at the time that he was shot. And I think this case is indicative that law enforcement needs to receive de-escalation training and also a way of identifying situations like this where a defendant is really having a mental health episode and to have support and resources where they can bring somebody in who knows how to handle that
2: type of situation. That's a great point. With the man's pants around his ankle, there had to be some way to (laughs) de-escalate.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. There's a joke in here. I just don't know.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Hinson with Just Liberty.
1: And I'm Amanda Marzullo from the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.
2: Goodbye, folks. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. Till then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.
0: The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers and cargo, when they get to the end of the line,
2: gonna learn
0: this train window nowhere long. And the ticket price show high. high. Stop the train. 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 Stop the train and I'm getting off When the train pulls into the station When the driver blows his horn My baby will be there waiting, long, Just as sure as the day you were born And the doors of the train will open And the platform people will flood And a voice will ring from heaven saying Your debt was Stop the train, 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 I'm getting old. Stop the train, 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 I'm getting old.